Thanks, Caitlin. Good morning, Arcadia. How you doing? Wow, that's actually wow. There are so many people out of town and so many people pretending to be out of town. And let, look, yeah, look at all of you. That's awesome. Way more than the first service. You guys are much more pious than the first service. I got to tell you. Um, uh, and, and also, what? Half the first service slept in, and they're here, right. Okay, I got it. Actually, what's kind of interesting is I, di- I even had somebody after first service say, hey, we're out of town. We're from Seattle, so not everybody who's out of town is not in your church. I got a migraine after she said that to me, so I don't get it. Anyway, good to see you here. There's going to be a little bit of awkward silence as I rearrange my notes because I forgot to rearrange them after first service. So I'll just tell you that I'm excited that we're back into Mark uh, after our three-week hiatus from that, and uh, David got us started back in there last week. Today, what we're going to do is um, we're going to look at Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 23, because there's a thread there that Jesus takes us through that is all connected, and it's a lot of verses. I understand that, but, but th- there's a, there is a central point to uh, this passage that we're eventually going to get to that's really important and applies so wonderfully. Again, all the gospel applies today, but uh, especially today, I'm, I'm excited about the, um, the, the teaching today, but I'm also, I will also warn you, it's really hard teaching today. Uh, this is, I just know culturally, uh, this passage in Mark, especially what we closed with there, what we will close with there, what Caitlin read, is very challenging in our context today. Uh, let me remind you a little bit of the context of Mark, though, because of what Mark does in this this 23-verse narrative, there are a few exceptions here that are a little bit different. Uh, Mark is writing mostly Romans, so he's writing mostly a non-Jewish audience. And, and we've talked before about how Mark uh, is very brief in his writing. It's the shortest of all the Gospels. And yet, during this passage here, he takes the time to make what scholars call some editorial notes about what is being taught by Jesus. Uh, and the, the scholars say that the reason he's doing this is because at the time that Mark was written, the Gospel of Mark was written, somewhere in the 60s, there were now a lot of non-Jewish people who were coming to faith in, in Christ and, and coming to uh, the Christian church. And they were concerned about the, the history and the tradition of where the Gospel of the Messiah actually comes from out of the Hebrew Scriptures. And so they're very curious about the Mosaic Law and the commentary on the Mosaic Law by the professional religious people. And so they want to know what parts of the law are still ap- applicable. And, and so this deals with a lot of that today. And, and so Mark makes some editorial comments to sort of help out his non-Jewish audience in this gospel. Another thing that happens, we'll see right at the very beginning of the passage in Mark chapter uh, 7, verse 1, is that the Pharisees come with the scribes from Jerusalem to oppose Jesus once again. We haven't had this opposition from the professional religious people uh, since probably the latter parts of Mark chapter 3, but here we have it again. And I want to remind you, they came from 90 miles away. So they're pretty dedicated to, they're like, wow, we, we keep hearing about this rabbi Jesus up there that's got some radical teaching. We need to go up there and oppose. To go 90 miles in the first century, they were dedicated to what uh, they were doing. And so what we're going to do is we're going to work through the 23 verses, make some observations, and then we're going to drill down the last 15 or uh, 16 minutes. We're going to really drill down on, on application, uh, and that's kind of how this will be split up. Uh, let's look first at the first eight verses of Mark chapter 7, where this, this whole idea of the internals versus externals gets started. Mark writes, 
Now when the Pharisees gathered to him, to Jesus, with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples, some of Jesus' disciples, ate with hands that were defiled, that is, they were unwashed. For the Pharisees, and and look, there's a parenthetical insert there. Now, there weren't parentheses in the original Greek, but the the scholars have determined that this is one of those editorial comments that, that Mark is inserting to try to help explain what's going on in this context. And he writes, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. That becomes an important phrase. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there were many other traditions that they observed, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And then we go back to the the narrative. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked Jesus, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And Jesus said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it was written. So he goes, Jesus just gets right to it. He says, you're hypocrites, and, and Isaiah has prophesied about you evil ones, okay? And this is what Isaiah writes. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. This is God talking about his own people. They honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. Here's a key component here. Teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And then in verse 8, he says, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. So that ritual cleansing that is referenced, why, why don't they, why do the disciples eat with defiled hands? There was actually a ritual cleansing that, that, that somebody was supposed to go through before they ate anything, before any Jewish person ate anything. There was a ritual cleansing that they had to go through. And that ritual cleansing was that you would pour water over your hands three times. And the key was not the water or any soap. There wasn't actually any soap. This was not about bacteria and dirt. It was about the ceremony of pouring the water over your hands three times. And the ceremony was, it was not a bad thing. The ceremony was actually about acknowledging God as God and, and, and understanding that you are submitting everything, including eating, to him. And, and that before you could come into God's presence even to eat anything, you had to be ritually pure. You had to be ceremonially clean. And so that's what this is all about. The problem is, is that many of these rituals were developed not, not at, they weren't Mosaic law. You can't necessarily find them in what Moses taught or wrote in the Old Testament, but rather they were Pharisaical comment on the law. It was them coming to the law and saying, let me give you further interpretation of, of what this means rather than the law itself. Again, not necessarily a bad thing. Not necessarily bad that somebody's making a comment about God's word. The problem is how they had prioritized it. It's not a bad thing, but it's not a saving thing. And many of the perps, the professional religious people, had suddenly decided that it was time to make these comments about the law saving things. They'd made it into the traditions of the elders, that phrase in there, had become a problem because the professional religious people had decided over the course of centuries that evolving oral law and tradition, in other words, the comments about the law, were now just as important or even in some cases more important than the Mosaic law. And that's why it became a problem. And and, unless you think that this is only an ancient challenge, we do the same things in, in Christianity in the church today. I remember in the 90s, um, this is a long time ago for some of you, but back in the 90s there was this big 
craze about spiritual disciplines, and so a lot of books were written about spiritual disciplines, and, and, um, and it, and it kind of became almost a fad. And, and again, there's nothing wrong with spiritual disciplines, things like fasting and solitude and prayer and all those things that we do. Uh, but, but some people began to elevate them a little bit too high. So, you know, Christians fast. We, we fast. And we fast not to be saved, and we fast rather because we are saved and we fast in order to develop spiritual clarity and spiritual hunger for God. The problem is when somebody comes along and says, you're not really a Christian unless you fast, making it a criteria to be saved. Now you've become a Pharisee. Now you've become somebody that Jesus would, would stand against in this passage. It's the same thing with like prayer. You know, some Christians... Many Christians get on their knees. They kneel to prayer. And the, and the idea is that that's not the only proper position or posture to pray in, but rather people do that in order to develop spiritual humility before God, so that's a good thing. But then people will come along and say, you're not really praying unless you're on your knees. You can't pray in any other way unless you're on your knees. So people with bad knees, you're out. You don't ever get to pray correctly. That's a problem, right? We've elevated the teaching of man above uh, the teaching of God. So, again, I want to clarify. This is really important. Jesus is not saying the traditions of the elders are bad in themselves, or certainly that the law is bad. I mean, he wrote the law. He is the law. He's the fulfillment of the law. Rather, he's speaking into the level of import that it's been given, which had become idolatrous for these guys. And, and, and let me just say, I mean, cleanliness is not a bad thing. Amen? I mean, you're hoping the person sitting next to you... You go out and you meet somebody you like or somebody that's important, maybe even somebody you don't necessarily like. What are you going to do before you go out? You're going to shower. You're going to brush your hair, brush your teeth, fix whatever, do whatever. Maybe put on some, make, put on some, you're going to look, you're going to clean up and look nice. It's not necessarily a bad thing. There are some of us who even wash our hands before we eat or wash our hands after we use the bathroom. But the minute you start to indoctrinize or idolize these things, then they become obstacles to the true gospel, to who Jesus really is. And verse 3 in this passage and 4 let us know that the hand-washing issue is really representative of a much bigger issue. This is about something even bigger than just the hands and the washing of the hands. The, the daily traffic pattern in the lives of the Jews or anybody else as they would come in contact with unclean things, uh, uh, they could come in contact with something that's dead or with bodily, any bodily fluid is considered unclean. Th there are many different things you could come in contact with that would make you ceremonially unclean for the presence of God. And so before you went into the presence of God, you had to go through all of these ceremonies and rituals and, and different things in order to clean yourself up uh, for the presence of God. The problem is that Jesus is trying to get at is that those things aren't the things that really make you unclean. What makes you truly unclean is your sin. And, and your sin doesn't come from outside of you. Your sin comes from inside of you. He's going to eventually get there, but that's where we're tracking. And, and so this idea of ceremonial clean, Jesus goes right at them, and he says all of these ceremonial ways to become clean are outside of the body, but the key is not what's on the outside of you. The key is your heart. The key is your internals. The key is what's going on on the inside of you, and there's only one thing that can transform your insides, your heart, your soul, your psyche, as it says in the Greek. There's only one thing that can transform that, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that's what he's getting at. 
So then Jesus, of course, quotes Isaiah to make a very strong point about these Pharisees who have taken on this sort of worldview that their teaching was more important than God's. He says, you know what? You're honoring God with your lips, but you're not honoring God with your heart. In other words, here you go. Let's put this into the 21st century perspective. You are much more interested in image management than true, true holiness. You're much more interested in image management than true holiness. And the key about this, you go back and read the, the chapter of Isaiah where this verse comes from, and you see that God is saying, anybody who does this honors me with their lips but not their heart, they are in for destruction. This is not a happy uh, chapter in Isaiah. It really challenges people. Um, there's a guy that uh, was part of uh, Harvard for uh, about four decades, a fairly famous psychologist, uh, PhD, and, and researcher. His name was Gordon Alport, and you can look him up on the internet. And he had a body, a corpus of research that was really interesting. And then many people over the years in the decades since that time have, have built on his research and stuff. I've read uh, 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 some of his stuff. And one of the reasons I got interested in Alport is because he does interesting stuff on affinity seeking and how we do that. But he also, he also started asking some questions about faith communities, which were really interesting. He actually started asking the question, you ever heard of the 2080 rule in churches? You ever heard of that, y'all? Okay, so 20% of the people do 80% of the work. 20% of the people give 80% of the money. That's kind of the way it works in, in most churches. Well, he, he, he was like, I wonder if that's really true or if that's just a myth. And so he and others have conducted extensive research on this and they found out it's not true. It's not true. What they found out is that it's really 9010 or 1585. That's what they found out. Isn't that something? And, and what's really interesting is they actually then assigned terms to the type of faith that a person in a church has based on this 8515. If you're part of the 15, they say that you have what's called intrinsic faith. Notice in. You have intrinsic faith. Your life is being lived inside out. Your faith is, is part of who you are in your guts. It has transformed who you are inside out, and now you live this way. Everybody else they call extrinsic faith. Your, your faith is only displayed on the outside of you for the purposes of gaining affirmation, accolades, and pleasing people. Now, and they say it's kind of part of image management. You're only doing it because you feel like you have to or it's your tradition or your family did it or whatever. It, you may believe it, but you don't, it hasn't really totally transformed who you are and you're being motivated to do things for reasons other than the true gospel faith. And they say it's people honoring God with their lips but not with their heart. So you think that's hard and challenging. How about this next paragraph? This next paragraph I think is really interesting. It'll take a little explanation, but here's what happens. And Jesus said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do. So he's saying this Corbin thing is important and, and, and it's a problem, but it's just representative of all these other ways in which you're honoring the traditions of man over the commandments of God. And this Corbin thing in particular 
is about and representative of something that all of us struggle with. The desire to appear religiously pious and yet having it not really cost us anything, but in the process it's going to help us feather our own nest. We're going to gain all the benefits from being religiously pious, but it's not going to cost us a single thing. And so what was happening then with this Corbin thing is this. The law, the Mosaic law, required that children take care of their parents in their old age. It was their version of Social Security. Okay? But that's expensive. Is anybody taking care of their parents? It's expensive. My, my father just passed away. He was 94. My mom is almost 91. Alzheimer's. You know what? It costs a lot of money to take care of your parents in your old age. Well, this word Corbin is actually Aramaic which is a, a language very similar uh, to Hebrew. It's Aramaic for dedicated to God or an offering to God. But it's a little bit tricky. Here's what they were doing. The Jewish religious leaders in their fallen state had set up a way <clears throat> for children with parents to designate funds for the temple, for God, but these funds never really ended up going to the temple in the long run. And once their parents died, the funds could then revert back to the person who had designated the funds, the children. So see, it, here's, here's what they were doing. In a sense, they were putting the funds in escrow where nobody could get at them, saying that it, the purpose is, of the funds is for this thing here, but then the escrow doesn't close and they get the funds. It's a little bit like setting up a trust today. Some of us set up trust today so that nobody else can get to the funds, but we retain control of the funds. And what happens is you, you get to say that these funds are dedicated to something really good and you get all the glory for that, but you still control everything. Ultimately, you still get all the benefits of the money while getting the glory of who you supposedly dedicated the money to. So Corbin was an instrument that the Jewish religious leaders had come up with to, to give the appearance of religious uh, piety without ever really costing the person anything at all. And the rule about Corbin was that at any time, usually after the death of the parents, for a very small fee, a nominal fee to the temple, that the Corbin could be revoked. And Jesus is saying you've made Corbin more important than, than the Mosaic command to care for your parents. You, you have made the oral comments about the law more important than the Mosaic law, and it's a problem and God doesn't like it. T.W. Manson writes a comment about this paragraph, and he says this, a man goes through the formality of vowing something to God, not that he may give it to God, but in order to prevent another person from having it and appear religiously pious in the process. And, and so this human condition of sin and fallenness just tends to push us to be hypocrites, which is exactly the Greek word that Jesus used in, in a couple of uh, verses before. He says, you guys are hypocrites. And that, that word hypocrite in Greek it refers specifically to the Greek theater where it meant somebody who would put on a mask and play a role and play a part, okay? Now it gets even tougher than that. Listen to this next paragraph that Caitlin already read for us. And Jesus called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And they said to him, and he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Can you hear just the frustration with Jesus? He's like, you've been hanging around with me for a couple of years now. You still don't get it. You're just like in many ways all the other people who just don't get it. 
Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart but his stomach and then is expelled? Here's another editorial comment by Mark. Thus, Jesus has declared all foods clean. And Jesus said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. We could, have, we could have used this illustration almost any week of this Mark series. In fact, it probably would have been really good last week when David preached because it was so prominent at that time, but I'm going to use it here. Here's what the disciples had become like. And, and just like all the other people um, who don't seem to get Jesus and what he's pointing at, the disciples had come like my dogs. I have two dogs. One, one's a Weimar, beautiful 95-pound here I even have a picture of him. His name is Moose. There he is. Moose has got a problem with hoarding. He's an idiot. Anyway, so, <laughs> and we have a little 13-pound Maltese as well, Lucy. Anyway, here, here's the problem. There's a ball over somewhere in the corner, okay? And I'll, and I'll say, get your ball. Get your ball. Do the dogs look at the ball? No, they're idiots. They're, they're enamored with my hand and my finger, and they come over and they sniff my finger and they lick my hand. They're, no, get the ball, get the ball. Oh, no, we like your finger, we like your hand. No, what they really want is the ball. What they need to see is what I'm pointing at. No, they're just enamored here. That's us with God. That's the disciples with Jesus. That's the people going to going to, uh, you know, he feeds the 5,000 and they're coming around going, we just need more bread. And he's going, no, you don't understand. I'm showing you what the kingdom of God is like. You don't get it. I'm pointing. We do this all the time. Uh, C.S. Lewis says that we value the secondary things over the primary things, which are the things that God is pointing us to. And so we value things like happiness over joy. You read through the Bible and you see that God is interested in us having joy, which is based on a relationship with Jesus that transcends all of our circumstances, good and bad. It's not that happiness is bad, but happiness is merely based on our circumstances. We win the lottery, we ha we're happy. We don't get the promotion, we're unhappy. But we want happiness and, and, we, and we discount the importance of joy. God says, no, in the gospel you find joy. It, it, we value morality over holiness. We, we want to be good and do the right thing and, and be considered good people. And God comes along and says, okay, that's not a bad thing, but without holiness, without transforming your heart, without, without being pure, which you can only have through Jesus Christ, you're missing the point. You're missing the primary thing. We, we value affirmation over honor. We would, we would rather seek the affirmation of other people rather than doing what always honors and glorifies God. We, 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 we value image over authenticity. We put on airs rather than being our authentic self because we know that if somebody knew who we really were. But then here's what's funny. Recently, authenticity has become a way to make our image better, right? Do you see how messed up we are? Now we're using authenticity to improve our image. We value the secondary. We value the externals over the internals. This is what Jesus is saying, and he says, you're missing the point. And Mark 19 gives us an interesting note of clarification. I mentioned it. Now the foods are clean. And somebody like me looks at that and goes, oh, good. So it's okay. I'm eating my Cheetos, my burritos, and my butter pecan ice cream. It's all good. It's all clean. And that is true. But if you think that's the extent of what God is trying to get at here, it's just not. It, that is just one small little part of it. 
What Jesus is pointing out is, is, not, is not that all foods are necessarily clean, though he is. He's saying, no, I want you to have a deeper understanding of who God is. God is not about the externals and about your food. God is about who you're going to give your life to, who you're going to give your heart to through the gospel. And then comes that sin list, which, I mean, we could, have a, we could have 13 weeks on that, one sin every week. That would be exciting. I mean, you could really go deep with this stuff. You can go and study that stuff for yourself. You all have internet access or books. I know those are ancient things, but you, you can do that. But the one thing I want to point out about that sin list, which is interesting to me, is the first six are actually evil acts, things that we actually commit, and, the, and the, the last seven are actually evil attitudes, things that we're thinking. In other words, Jesus covers the gamut. He's very comprehensive in what he's teaching here. He, he, he's telling us, I got you on thought and deed. I, I got you on commission and omission. And then the payoff verse, verse 23. And here's where it gets really hard. If all evil things come from within, where does evil come from? Pe people ask this question all the time. If God is such a good and loving God, why is there so much evil? Here's Jesus' answer. Us. You and me. That's where it comes. Oh, no, 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 no. I can't live with that. That's the biblical worldview of reality. We are the problem. We are the source of evil. So who defiles us then? Is it the stuff on the outside of us that defiles us? It's us. And, and, and let me tell you something, man. This goes right back to Genesis 3. The very first sin was rebellion, evil acts against God. The second sin was what? Blame shifting, trying to find somebody else to blame for the evil that we that we commit. And so we're the ones that defile ourselves. We are the victims, not, uh, we, are the, we are the villains, not the victims. We always want to portray ourselves as the victims. That's the problem. That's not a biblical worldview. We're the villains who are then saved by the grace of God through Jesus Christ. And that's when the good news comes. The only way to save us out of this state is from Jesus coming in and transforming our heart, renewing our mind, giving us, uh, making us a new creation, giving us a new life to live by the power of the gospel and not the power of our own moral code or personal commandments or whatever that is. And that is the good news. There, there are so many people that want the good news without the bad news. There is no such thing as good news unless you have the bad news first. The bad news is that we're the problem, but the good news is the solution is Jesus Christ. He comes and he says, I love you. I can take you out of this problem. Just give your life to me. You see, Jesus, with this statement, declares that the true intent of the Mosaic Law, which is purity, does not come by keeping clean those things that are external to us, but rather from his transformation of our hearts through the gospel. That's where cleanliness comes from. Our goodness and purity does not depend on our good deeds, but rather on the fact that he, Jesus, has already done everything to fulfill the law and secure our salvation. That's where we find our salvation, is in him, and it's already done. And that's the big idea today. Some of you are like, where's the big idea? You always have a big idea. Well, that was just the introduction, sorry. Here's the big idea. Walk according to the gospel, the good news of God. And there's three ways that this can be considered. Here's the first. Walk according to the gospel, not according to the approval and affirmation of man. My friend Tom Parker says this all the time. He says, all of us are addicts. We're all affirmation addicts, right? 
we're all people pleasers at our core. And again, Jesus isn't, he's not against the elders, he's not against the traditions, he's not against the law. What he is clarifying, however, are two really important things. Number one, what it is that truly gives us power is not anything external to us. You and I in our, in our fallen state are constantly seeking something external to us to give us power, and it's not there. It's not in some moral code or law or principle or axiom or methodology or way. It's in Jesus Christ coming in, taking over our hearts, transforming our lives by the power of the gospel. That's where it is. And the second thing he's trying to clarify is this. Our insatiable desire for the affirmation of man over and against trusting God is an empty pursuit and ends in frustration, depression, and anger. It's very interesting. Consider Mark chapter 7, verse 5. They come to Jesus and they ask him very accusingly. They say, why don't your disciples walk according to the traditions of the elders? And here's the answer. It's all over the New Testament. It's basic Christianity 101. Everybody talks about this in the New Testament. We are constantly reminded that we are to walk not according to the traditions of man, but according to the gospel, according to our being a new creation, according to the love that we've been given by Jesus. We are to walk in the light, not in the darkness. We are to walk in the internal transformation of the gospel of our lives, not in the traditions of man. And I'll just give you a few verses so you can kind of noodle on those. Philippians 1.27, Paul says, Only let your manner of life... Literally, it actually, that could be translated, live as a citizen of, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Ephesians 4.1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, which is the gospel. Ephesians 5.2, Paul says, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. That's the gospel. He loved us first, we love others and love him back as a result. John 8, 12, Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That's the gospel. Romans 6, 4, Paul says, We were buried with Jesus by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life, not in some moral code. Romans 8, 3, and 4, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. That is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. God has done for us what the law, weakened by our flesh, could not. He's done it for us. And he did it by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. That's the gospel. 2 Corinthians 5, 7, Paul says, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We walk by the internals, not the externals. Colossians 2, 6, therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. And we could go on and on and on. Jesus is saying, essentially here, there's a problem, and it's us. Uh, Tim Keller comments on this passage, and he says this. What's really wrong with the world? Why can the world be such a miserable place? Why is there so much strife between nations, races, and classes? Why do relationships fray and fall apart? Jesus is saying, we are what's wrong. It's what comes from the inside. It's the self-centeredness of the unredeemed human heart. It's sin. You see, you and I, the Jews got this right. You and I are unfit for the presence of God apart from the holiness that Jesus Christ gives us in the gospel. And, and we are defiled by our sin, not the world itself. And the only way that we are 
we are allowed now to be in the presence of God is through the gospel. But this is radical. This is radical teaching. It was radical then. It's radical now in our context. You know, here's what Jesus is saying. This is going to kill some of you. This is what Jesus is saying. Just because a person does good deeds, it does not mean they are a good person. Your deeds do not define you in the gospel. That's actually pretty good news if you think about it because you've done some really bad deeds too, right? You're not defined by them either in the gospel. This is really, really good news. What you do is not what defines you. It's who you know that defines you. But we love to do the good deeds because it so often gives us the affirmation of man. Jesus is saying that the deeds that are done that are genuinely good only come from a transformed heart by the gospel. Those are the good deeds. That's really challenging, isn't it? That's hard stuff. We look at people all the time and say, that's a really good person. Look at all the good things that person is doing. And we say, does he know Jesus? That's what makes him good. So we need to quit walking for the approval of man and doing these good deeds so that we look good and we feel good about ourselves and instead live in Christ. Here's a second way we could consider this. Walk according to the gospel, not according to false and deceitful religious piety. We need to understand that ritual purity is not genuine purity. Um, Some of you remember there was an old show that I really loved. It was called Seinfeld long, long time ago, like decades ago, okay, Seinfeld. So there was a character named George on there, and they got, George and Jerry got into a conversation because um, there was a, uh, um, a restaurateur, his name escapes me right now, but there was a restaurateur, and Jerry was at the restaurant, and he was in the bathroom with the guy that owned the restaurant, and he walked out of the bathroom without washing his hands. So that was a little bit of a problem for um, Poppy. Poppy was his name. So that was a little bit of a problem for uh, Jerry. So he and George got into this conversation, and George said, didn't he at least do even the walkthrough? Because that's what I do sometimes. I'll go into the bathroom, and, and I'll, I'll use the bathroom, and then I'll, just, I'll walk by the sink, and I'll just kind of put my hands under there without turning on the water and then go, so that in case anybody's in there and sees me, they think I wash my hands. But are George's hands clean? No. Ritual purity is not genuine purity. But again, I want to say this. There's nothing wrong with the traditions of the elders. There's nothing wrong with the axioms. There's nothing wrong with these laws. It's the elevation that they've been given. And now what's happening is, is, and Jesus is calling them out on this. He's saying, you have elevated these rituals way above what truly cleanses you, and that is a relationship with God. If these rituals are merely covering up the impurity that's underneath, you are what? You are whitewashed tombs. You have dead bones on the inside. And not only are you still separated from God, but you're going to live a life of frustration, depression, and anger as a result of it. And I've said this before many times. One of the reasons we love a method or a path or a routine or a ritual rather than the gospel is because that method, path, routine, or path, or way, or whatever it is, it really never digs deep into our lives. And we like that. The challenge with the gospel is it digs deep. God digs deep. Read his word. He digs into your soul. Pray. He's going to dig into your soul. The Holy Spirit is going to dig into your soul. Being in Christian community, that will dig into your soul. It'll dig deep. It'll go to those uncomfortable places. It'll get to those... Let me give you an example. This is just one very tiny little example that I'll share with you about my life. It's representative of many places where the gospel wants to dig deep. I tend to be more cerebral than affective. Can I get an amen from those of you that know me? Yeah, there you go. 
okay? All right, so you know what? That's a problem, actually. That's a problem. And so God digs. The gospel digs. God keeps showing me all the places where it's about the transformation of the heart, not the renewing of your mind. Frank, you're really good on the renewing of the mind, but your heart, we got to get that gospel 18 inches south into your heart, metaphorically speaking. We need to do that. And the gospel is relentless at that. And here's what else. I don't get to just say, hey, don't bother me about caring and connecting with people effectively. I'm an academic. I only, I'm only up here. I don't get to say that in the gospel. Because the gospel is saying that that is incomplete. That's an incomplete understanding of the life in Christ. And by the way, you could even go so far as to say, and what is it that you're hiding, Frank, by claiming brains over heart? But it's true the other way, too. Those of you who are more affective, you thought I'd let you off the hook. No, 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 no. You've got to remember that Paul does say his keynote verse in Romans is you will be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so those of you that just want to care and connect and never learn anything, you need to start learning something too. We all do. We all do. I need to learn how to connect better at a heart level. But we need to know something too. Our, our, our gospel is incomplete if it isn't holistic. And the problem is, here you go. I, seriously, what am I covering up? What am I whitewashing over by saying, I'm just an academic, I'm never going to connect with you at a heart level. What is it that I'm... We love to whitewash things. I have a, I have a good friend, a uh, younger friend. Uh, about five years ago, his wife got a master's degree. She worked hard two and a half years, got her master's degree, and he decides very hastily because he's sort of a, you know, a last-minute kind of a person. He said, i got to make a party for her. So he says, we're going to have a party tomorrow, and that morning, he rushes into Costco up at Paradise Valley, the Costco by Paradise Valley. He rushes in there to find a cake for the party. And he runs into the bakery area at Costco, and he sees some cakes on display, and he sees one that's got purple and gold icing on the cake. And, and she, grad, she got her degree from GCU, and he goes, oh, great, GCU colors. So he grabs that cake, and he runs up to the front, and he's trying to get wrung out, and they're having a problem. They don't have an SKU number for it. They don't know how much it is. Finally, after some rigmarole, they eh, make it $25, get him out of here. And he pays his $25 plus tax, and he gets out of there. He goes home, and he throws the cake into the refrigerator. Later that night, we're having the party. And it was time for the cake. And so he goes and he gets the cake and he brings it out. And he starts cutting into the cake with the knife and it won't go past the icing. So now he says, ah, maybe this knife isn't good. So he goes and gets a little bit bigger knife and he can't cut through any farther than the icing. Okay? So now he's going, well, did the cake get frozen in, in the refrigerator? What's going on with the cake? Is it frozen? So they get a bigger knife with a serrated edge. Nothing. The true story. His father-in-law goes into his garage and gets a saw. They didn't care at this point. They just want to get in to see. Okay, you know what was on the inside of that cake? Styrofoam, that's right. It wasn't a real cake. It was a display cake. You're supposed to order cakes at Costco. Okay? It's like a nightmare dressed up as a daydream, you know? Here you go, Taylor Swift, all right? She, even, even the gospel in her, all right? <laughs> I'm never coming back here. He just quoted Taylor Swift. George Costanza and Taylor Swift in the same sermon. What is wrong with this guy? But do you see my point? What, what, what are we just putting icing on in our lives? Jesus says it's the internals that are either going to save us or condemn us. And, and like I said, one of the most challenging things about the gospel is it's calling our lives to live 
the life in Christ and to dig deep and to confront sin. David says this all the time, David Massey. He says, here's the gospel. God calls you, God confronts you in your sin, and God begins to conform you to the image of Christ. We want to go from calling to conforming. We We don't like that confrontation about the sin. And so as a result, even those of us who are in Christ, we're always trying to figure out a ways around that sin area, often through deceitful piety. We, tr- we put on airs and we, we wear a tie to church or something, you know, and oh, that's, that makes me a good person or whatever. Let me tell you something. I am not a creative person, amen? Not creative at all. Could never be an architect or a painter or whatever until it comes to loopholes and sin. Watch my game when it comes to that. I am more creative than anybody in this room when it comes to my sin. Let me tell you something. I took vanilla and made 31 flavors out of it, my brothers and sisters, I'm telling you. And it's the same thing with you. The most uncreative people in the world suddenly become Mozart and Picasso when it comes to kind of paper macheing over our sin. The problem, of course, is that now we're engaged in sin management and sin never stays where it's supposed to because sin is way more clever than we are, way more creative than we are, way smarter than we are. We take sin and we put it over here in the corner and we say, listen, I want you to just stay here, sin. I want to just dip into you every now and then for a little bit of pleasure, but you stay there so you don't mess up anything else in my life and the sin's going, <laughs> no way. I'm going to mess you up. Because sin always goes farther than we ever thought it would. It always lasts longer than we ever figured it would. And it always destroys more than we ever hoped it would. That's the nature of sin. So you can't just cover over it with religious piety. And that leads us to our third point. Walk according to the gospel. Because that is your identity. Your identity is not in the things of this world. A long quote from Tim Keller that I think is very helpful here. He says this. Here's an important comment on pop culture in the world. Christina Kelly was for years a very successful editor of young women's magazines. Over a period of several years, she was on the staff of Elle Girl, YM, Jane, and Sassy. Some years back, she wrote a confession piece in which she asked this question. Why do we crave celebrities? Here's my theory. To be human is to feel inconsequential. So we worship celebrities and seek to look like them. All the great things that they have done we identify with in order to escape our own inconsequential lives. But it's so dumb. With this stream of perfectly airbrushed, implanted, liposuction stars, you would have to be an absolute powerhouse of self-esteem already not to feel totally inferior before them. So we worship them because we feel inconsequential. But doing it makes us feel even worse. We make them stars, but then their fame makes us feel insignificant. I am a part of this whole process as an editor. No wonder I feel soiled at the end of the day. It's Jeremiah 2.22. The Lord declares, though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me. Years ago, the playwright Franz Kafka, commenting on one of his own plays, said, you know, one of the challenges, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he said, you know, one of the challenges of the world and the culture we live in today is we know there's evil and we know there's sin, And we know there's guilt, but we have bifurcated the guilt away from our own evil and sin. We have covered up and pasted over, put icing on the guilt so that we can go on and sin and be evil without having to deal with our guilt. That's true. That's true. And so Jesus comes to fulfill the law and he cleans us inside out and our identity is now 
in him. It's in the gospel. And think about this. We live in a culture today. Josh got up earlier and talked about it, what we're going to do on the 16th and 30th. We have so many other identities that we can build for ourselves and construct for ourselves, but there's only one identity that really makes a difference, and that's the gospel. And, and think about it this way. Here's what Jesus is ultimately saying in this passage, and as challenging as it is, this is really good news. He's saying that all the cleanliness laws have all been fulfilled, that their purpose has already been accomplished in Him. Therefore, we don't have to do a thing. And, 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 he, and he not only teaches that, but He demonstrates it. I want you to think about crucifixion. Think about it. He goes to the cross. And understand that, remember earlier I said all of, the, all of the bodily fluids are considered unclean by the Jews. You know that when you're crucified, with maybe one exception, you excrete, excrete every single bodily fluid there is. You perspire, you've got saliva coming out, you urinate on yourself, there's blood coming out, every last possible one except maybe one. Jesus was made unclean inside out on our behalf. But you know what? He was also made unclean from the outside. We are told that people spat on him, unclean. And they hurled other stuff at him as well, including insults. Jesus was made unclean both inside and outside so that you and I could be made clean on the inside out by Jesus Christ. That is the gospel. That is the good news. And therefore, you and I are already clean in him. We don't have to clean up our lives. We're clean in him. It's the essence of what Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He who knew no sin became sin for us, became sin for us, so that you and I might become the righteousness of God. That is amazing news. Let me pray and then Cody's going to come and wrap things up for us and lead us into our time of, of response. God, thank you for your good news. Thank you for your gospel. And thank you that you teach us the hard things, but ultimately what you get at in the end is the good news that we've been cleansed by you from the inside out. And so there's nothing else that we have to do. All we need to do is love you, respond to you with the love that you have given to us, and live our lives in you. Thank you for that, Jesus. We pray it in your name.